Hi, my name is Stephen Crafty and I'm presenting Talking Design at RMIT University in Melbourne. And I'm here with someone I've known for a very long time. I think it's not just years, it's decades. Indeed. It? Decades. <laughs> uh, Robin Oswald Jacobs, who has been very uh, much uh, driving, um, promoting and writing on Francis Burke, the textile designer who's very significant to Australia. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Stephen. Now, you've just, um, with Nanette... Uh, Carter, you've just got uh, been awarded the uh, Redmond Barry Scholarship. Indeed, we for have. this following yes. year. Yes, we so. feel extremely privileged. It's been amazing. The um, the Redmond Barry, because of Redmond Barry's involvement in Melbourne, which was uh, partly through the State Library, establishing the State Library in Melbourne University, means that we have the intelligent and um, kind support of all the collection managers from those yeah. two institutions. Okay, so Plus an office at the State Library. How exciting. It's so um, uh, you hope to produce a book out of this. Well, you will be. We are. You, you yes, are producing we're a book. To publishers Publishers as we at the speak. moment. Mm-hmm. Um, now, you, you start in the early 90s the. Uh, the Resource Centre. The textile. For textiles. Yes. So that didn't just include Francis Burke, did it? No, no. So who was... were the people you were looking at at that time? Well, we were looking at broadly at Australian fashion and textile design because um, at that stage there were a number of designers, fortunately still alive. Um, they had archival material as well as as paper-based material as well as fabric-based material. So who are some of the names you were looking at in the early 90s? Well, we looked at Francis, of course, and Ailsa Graham, Art Fabrics, um, Annan Fabrics from Sydney, uh, discovered that Gerard Herbst, uh, who was then at RMIT as the head of industrial design, had established and run the print, um, the design workshop at Prestige Fabrics. So we we looked broadly across the Australian um, scene, looking backwards rather than forwards at that stage. So it was established in the early 90s. When did you get your first um, interest in textiles and fabrics? Well, I interesting. Mean, you've, you've been at RMIT, you, tra- you trained in textile yes, design. Yes, I did. Yes. So that's obviously an interest. But yes. when, why why that period? Because it did experience a resurgence in the early 90s before post-war design was really... Well, it did. But there's an interesting link there. I went to school in Sydney and my teachers, my art teachers at the time said that they thought I was more design oriented than fine art oriented. And in fact, it would be great to be able to go to RMIT in Melbourne. Um, Fortunately or unfortunately, as the case was, my father was transferred to Melbourne so I did come to RMIT, but the teacher, I discovered later, the teacher who'd encouraged me had actually worked for a person mm. called Francis Burke in Melbourne during the war. And this teacher had taught design and textiles and screen printing at school. So, so it's a natural link. Indeed. It was amazing. So so he was. So that was already on your radar. It was already on my radar. In the yes. 60s. And then... When I was here at RMIT, I met, um, I won, in fact, I won the Prestige Award for, so Prestige Textiles Award for my second year work. And I realised only yesterday that Francis Burke probably judged it. But part of the award 
was to give back to the area that you worked in or were proposing to work in. So I went on to the, as a student member, onto the Arts and Crafts Society Victoria Committee Mm -hmm. and Frances was then the president. Mm -hmm. And so I met her then, which was 1969. And um, later when I'd established my own textile business and decided that I'd very much like to know more about what Frances did kind of work she produced, the sort of problems she had in her business, I found there was no documentation of her of her work Why to do you date. think that? Was she just too busy to get round to all Well, that, I don't... At that stage, none of the, the galleries had really... They'd collected her work. So her work was held in fairly significant um, quantity in the National Gallery of Australia. John McPhee was the decorative arts curator there and had been an early... Um, collector of her work Um, and then the powerhouse had a large collection and then even the gallery in Ararat had a collection before the NGV moved to also Um, take quite a big collection so that was terrific. Now people who don't know about Frances Burke she wasn't I mean, she was very popular with a lot of architects at the time, people like Guilford Bell. She was. uh, Roy Grounds. Roy Grounds. Robin Boyd. Robin Boyd. And a lot of the modernist architects in the other states. So they used, I mean, so her work was national. Indeed. And uh, obviously the trigger was a lot of Melbourne, Mm -hmm. leading Melbourne architects. What what was it about uh, her work that resonated, do you think, with them and also with you? I think with the architects, she was... So there was a philosophy that probably preceded her actual design idiom, but her her commitment was to ensure that her work sat well in a room, that it was a unit of, of furnishing of a whole room so that it didn't seek to monopolise the space or to overwhelm it in any way. Um, she understood the architect's intention and could meet them on an intellectual as well as an aesthetic level. So I think that got her off the blocks. I think her earliest commission that we can find is with Roy Grounds, and I think her energy and Roy's energy probably matched one another. What was the, was, what was the design like at the time? Um, the design is terrific. It was, it was a curtain for... Well, curtaining for... Um, the Quamby Flats, which are in Glover Street, Glover Court, in, in Turak, sort of up behind South Yarra Tennis Club on on a site that had been undeveloped for a long time that was rocky and and fairly um, hostile. It was it had glorious north-facing views, but it also had the full brunt of, of the weather. And uh, as Neil Clarahan rightly said, what... The building that that Roy designed and and put there positioned him as one of Australia's leading architects. He he took the site and he designed to it in terms of fanning out the the apartments. It wasn't a block of apartments; it was a fan shaped um, building which just picked up the views brilliantly. They were studio apartments, so. The there was a kitchenette, which was quite an unusual mm. insertion. And what he'd asked Francis to do was supply fabric for a curtain that would screen off the kitchen facility from uh, a lovely room. In case visitors dropped in. And so, know. yes, and Francis found this quite unusual because 
as she's recorded as saying, only in the slums was the kitchen part of the, <laughs> the living space. But in fact, what Roy had done was produce these apartments, which are still functional and beautiful. What was the fabric like, Robin? Can the you... fabric's called Ranga, and it's uh, three colours. It's It has an Aboriginal um, sort of origin, because in those days, as Margaret Preston had exhorted designers to not change a thing, just to copy Aboriginal designs, um, Francis had picked up uh, the design, which looks as if it could have been a waterhole with tracks going to it. So there's, it's a tan colour and a yellow and black with black and in a sort of a, a block design. But it was a, it, it doesn't sound like it, but it was a gentle design for the space mm. and it, it it was a beautiful addition to the space. So you've obviously revisited the Glover Court apartments, correct? Not the interior, but oh. fortunately I've lurked around the outside. Are the curtains still there? Any curtains? No, it would be un- very unlikely, but there's some lovely photographs. There's, there's a terrific colour photograph, which will appear in the book, Stephen. Right. So um, um, we can talk to you about that next year. Um, Robin, now... Uh, Frances also, she supplied places like George's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, leading department stores mm-hmm. around Australia. Yep. Uh, would you say she was, I mean, she was earlier, but would you say there's a comparison between um, uh, Frances Burke and Marameko in terms of what it did to, you know, interiors at the time? Yes. But it's earlier. Frances, Frances set up her business in 1937. Which is so about she 20 precedes, years earlier. Yeah, way precedes Marameko. Um, she established it with a fellow student from RMIT called Morris Holloway. So they called it Burway and had an impact on the market. But it wasn't it – was, it was immediate in the sense that the, the newspapers of the day picked her up and gave her – generous space. Um, She'd also started to exhibit with the Arts and Crafts Society of Victoria quite early on. So she had had good exposure. Uh, But her early designs are quite different, smaller, less assured, less interesting in lots of ways. Yes, than her later designs, which... um, which really did have an... had the sort of impact that Marameko did eventually... Um, Marameko burst onto the market and I think that Frances in her sort of mid-period um, probably did the same. She she was a name that had been around but and although her designs went on being used for... There's a few designs that, that seem to have been well in production and sold and also used for, for um, interior and architectural commissions for 20 years, which is... It is. I think the thing is uh, printing was very uh, strong after that. I mean, and even right through to the 80s, there were um, printing houses like Print in Tin that mm, did really well. Absolutely, yes. What's happened to printing in Melbourne and the bigger picture in Australia? It doesn't seem to happen anymore. Is it because... Uh, there's no market or people just see it's too difficult and too well, hands-on? I yes, mean, the machines have disappeared from Australia. There are this, there are still some, well, there are some designers for short runs which, who are starting up again, but the market's so flooded these days. 
It's so easy to produce fabrics. In in the days when Frances started, um, she worked through the period of the war with uncertain supply of her base fabric. Um, she used cottons and linens, and they came from various different countries to support her. And there were tariffs, and there was she she did. Uh, have to deal with quite a few external pressures to produce the fabric. But (laughs) she's also quoted... She had a bit of a way with words, Frances. She said that there was nothing so satisfying for a business person than to have a monopoly. And she did during the war. (laughs) And and directly (laughs) post-war. Did Robin, did she supply anyone overseas or her market was pretty much contained to Australia? Well, her friends, May and Dick Casey, who were had various diplomatic postings around um, Cairo and then to Bengal and Washington and Canberra, not necessarily in that order. But May Casey was a great friend of Francis and Dick was a great champion of Francis. So they commissioned fabrics to um, to use in their various um, the houses and, and to talk about Australia. Um, Francis also produced a wonderful design for May, which was titled Bengal Tiger. And it was a blue and white design, which May had made up into a suit, so a dress with a jacket. And um, Cecil Beaton took a photographic essay of May wearing the garment. And it just, the photographs are terrific. It's a, a leafy sort of jungle abstract jungle with a, a tiger sort of sliding through it. Um, so, yes, she she went overseas probably more on commission than she did by supplying um, outlets overseas. It is, look, it's very strong work, um, especially, you know, for the seaside projects. You know, she's got these lovely, for people who can't see, obviously, we'll see the images uh, when they're posted. But, you know, lovely kind of abstract interpretations of uh, seashells and the waves are just quite gentle lines just flowing. That probably would have appeared in Queensland, correct? Or Well, indeed. Um, Guildford Bell, the, the association with Guildford Bell was through the Hayman Island Resort, which um, Reg Ansett, and that the design there that you're looking at now, which is a beautiful um, one-colour, positive negative design of sea pieces so sponges and shells and um, various other sea life not in this one fishes but she did she did quite like fish but she was um she was a very competent designer and then became more confident and and really beautifully balanced what do you think was holding her back because I mean she's she became you know I mean People in design knew her, but she didn't become a huge name. I think... What was holding her back? Probably just the the kind of general acceptance of her, her design's ubiquity at the time. There were plenty of them around, so nobody thought to, to perhaps um, respect her in the way that um, even the furniture designers of the period were respected. So Clement Meadmore is not such a household name as Grant Featherston, for instance. Um, and yet Francis' designs appear in in rooms with both Clement's furniture and Grant's furniture, but they don't often appear as part of an architectural um, 
portfolio of images where the architects were far more interested in taking mm. the outsides of the photo of, of, of the, the building of the building from rather than the inside. And if they did, they took the furniture and they left the well, curtains they in the did, background. They'd take the photograph of the interior and they might say. Uh, interior by such and such an architect with furniture by so and so and completely forget that in the background of the image there's nearly three quarters of the page is taken up by a graphic design of Francis uh, yeah. in some curtaining or other. So uh, I think it was just a, a sort of general neglect of household furnishings, <laughs> you know. It wasn't a... They weren't... Um, um, choosing to to deal Francis out of the equation at all, um, but, but they didn't include her in it. With the uh, with the revival in post-war uh, architecture that probably happened in the nineties onwards, probably in the early noughties, basically onwards, was there a resurgence of interest in Francis Burke, or is it still about to happen? I mean, are we going no. to see a bit of a wave, and maybe with the release of your book? Um, There'll be a tsunami. A tsunami. (laughs) Better stay indoors. (laughs) Um, But do you think there's going to be a revival? And, I mean, how rare are, you know, how is anyone interested in reproducing the fabrics now? I think a few people are, but I think there's a difficulty in doing so. Well, there are various difficulties in doing so. But if anybody's really interested to see the designs, um, there's a number of them. Uh, digitised now by the NGA, the National Gallery of Australia, and also the National Gallery of Victoria. Um, the Powerhouse has also a number of them on their site that are digitised. They all hold collections bigger than than the digitised photographs. And when when but, did um, Frances go out of business, close the doors? She closed the door in about 1970. Um, her last two commissions were were f- for curtains, <laughs> one, one lot for the State Library, for because the the gallery and the museum had moved out of the State Library complex here in La Trobe Street and uh, the Irving Benson Hall was instated there and Frances produced a design called Shields that she'd called Shields, um, a big design um, that maybe does show some sort of understanding of the um, the size motive that Marameco also used. Really overblown. Mm, but the, the, her most successful final commission was for the Canberra Civic Centre Theatre, uh, where she was commissioned to design the theatre curtains. Oh. And she designed this wonderful um, black opal, she called it, and it was five to six colours, quite a, a loose design, textural in gestures in, in Francis' sort of um, language. And the design went from a black and purple outer sort of shell into a bright orange and and high-toned yellow. So it looked as if you were looking into the centre of a fiery gem. And that went into the Yunkin Freeman Griffith Simpson um, design, theatre design for the Canberra Civic Centre. Do you think there's going to be a revival I think somebody would have to take it up with relish and provide enough designs. Curtains these days aren't huge. There's other solutions for, for window covering. But I have shown a number of the designs to to younger interior designer friends and they see um, chair coverings or cushions or that sort of um, 
application rather than curtains. Yes. I mean, she so, did the lot, though, also. She, she did, did furnishings as well. Yes, she did. And there are a number of photographs of her fabrics covering chairs. She also did much smaller pieces, um, was sort of table napkins, um, table mats, scarves, um, smaller sort of, I hesitate to say wall hangings because they really weren't part of her mm. her offer. Um, but That's certainly what people use them for. People would use them for, yes. Mm. But the, um, and they made terrific clothes out of, um, out of the furnishing fabrics. Mm. Um, one of our family members who's, who's quite small remembers saving up for enough um, fabric to make a pair of shorts and then when she could afford it, she bought enough fabric to make a dirndl skirt, which was a, a skirt gathered onto a waistband. And then when she got married, she was able to um, to buy fabric for, um, for furnishings for their new flat. Um, and this was somebody who worked for MAG in those days. And so, and MAG Interac, owned by Dame Zara Holt. That's right. Or Zara Holt, as she was in those days, um, was really fashion forward in terms of its its fabrications. So they were using Francis Burke fabric and, and it was desired. But fabrics, I think, also suffer because everybody wears them. <laughs> everybody has them in their houses. So people don't perhaps think... Value them. Mm. How, In terms of value, how rare is it to find a Francis Burke piece of fabric? And like what... I mean, you know, this isn't a money show, but I'm interested because if people have it at home... You know, it, it's quite substantial now. Like a metre of Francis Burke or a couple of metres that hasn't been used, what would you be looking at? Depends. It's likely to go to auction. It could be $500, yeah. sort of thereabouts, for a, for a couple of clean metres. Yeah. Um, a piece sold, which is actually wrongly um, attributed on the selvage mark, it looks as if it's a, a Francis Burke fabric, but the order of the words that he used in the selvage mark, which is a is a very um, time honoured way for fabric designers and printers to identify it isn't themselves. Hers, it wasn't hers. No, and that that was bought by a private individual, thinking it was Francis. Mm. But in the nineties, Sydney Living Museums purchased about thirty um, pieces of fabric, and. At this stage, I'm not sure what they paid for them. So it wouldn't have been insubstantial. So if you look at, the, this should be the name is clearly on mm. the selvage, mm. Francis Burke. Well, Francis Burke's name's there, but um, she had a, a group of designs which she had clustered together as a marketing exercise sort of later in her, her career where she'd taken the designs that had sold best over the last 20 years and sort of... Um, put them together into what she called the unit design range. And um, the piece that was bought in Sydney was design unit. So mm. it just, uh, somebody had been copying it, I think, and if they were going to, they should have done a better job. <laughs> I suppose the thing is it is such a specialty area that people really have to know Francis Burke's work. to know. It's like looking at a painting. And there would have been copies. There's always people copying yeah. uh, great yes. thinkers and great designers Indeed. and you really have to really know what you're doing. Do you have any Francis Burke at home? I have a few small pieces, um, which 
have been made were made by Fabi Chamberlain, France's companion of 67 years, into what they would have called pinnies, little aprons, pinafores, and sensibly the women wore them when they were cooking. <laughs> I don't think anybody knows much about them now, except that in cafes they have rather um, sculptural-looking, wonderful calico or... or heavy denim with with um, leather straps yes. and things that look terrific. In those days, they tended to be much smaller and frillier and Fabi had carefully crafted some of the leftover pieces of fabric into these pennies, which she said to so, me. So, Robin, when me. you have a dinner party, do you kind of come out of the kitchen in your <laughs> Francis Burke penny? Prance out of the kitchen. Um, no, I haven't been known to do that. But if you ever come for dinner, Stephen, I'll make sure I do. <laughs> look... Thanks so much for coming on to the program today. I think we'll hear a lot more about Frances Burke. I mean, she has been on my radar for a number of years. Yes, I know that, and, and for which and, I'm grateful. And uh, I think, you know, these are the people um, that really need the recognition because mm-hmm. the history does lose a lot of our great designers. And, and really, she made her mark. Indeed she did. As you will be making your mark. <laughs> we hope we will. Look, thanks so much for coming into the program. Yep. Uh, you've been listening to Robin Oswald Jacobs, who has just received the Redmond Barrys Scholarship with Nanette Carter, so who's um, an adjunct scholar at Swinburne University. Thanks so much for listening. You've been with Stephen Crafty, Talking Design in Melbourne at RMIT.